Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Hi, I'm Ulsana Devi Pasad, and I study animal, plant, and environmental science. One thing we learned when uh, being environmentally friendly is cost efficient, and um, when universities uh, well, when they're starting off being environmentally friendly, uh, it can be a bit costly because when looking at, um, say, the water as well as um, energy, uh, light bulbs, it might be costly to change all these light bulbs, but in the long run, it'll save on the electricity bill. Yeah, I just didn't expect global warming and climate change to be such a big effect. I thought it was it was a gradual change, but it wouldn't really affect us more the future generation, but it actually is affecting. Right now, we have a drought. So that big issue um, when it comes to like food availability, water availability, we have a lot of load shedding, which are affecting our lectures. And uh, yeah, when we don't have water at campus, that's also a big effect on us. Um, well, I think it's a 50-50 kind of thing. You can't just expect management to do everything without students uh, wanting to help as well. So they would both have to play a role in this. Yeah. Our topic for today's show is the environment, or to be more specific, the role that universities can play in environmental issues, including battling climate change, food insecurity, and cultures of waste. Is climate change something that universities should be worried about? Is climate change something that staff and students should be getting involved with? And what links might there be between other social justice questions and the environment? To discuss these issues, we welcome Vishwas Satgar to the show. Vishwas is an Associate Professor of International Relations at Fitz University. His research interests include the green international political economy, critical theory, transnational historical materialism, and African political economies and transnational alternatives. Vishwas has been an activist for over 30 years. He co-founded the Cooperative and Policy Alternative Center, COPAC, and now chairs the board. He's also a member of the National Coordinating Committee for the South African Food Sovereignty Campaign. A quick note to apologize in advance for the few minor disturbances that you may hear during the interview that follows. So a very warm welcome to Professor Vishwash Satka, who is going to be talking with us today about big questions related to the environment and climate change and universities. So let's start with perhaps the biggest question of all. Where are we at right now in terms of global climate politics and climate justice? What would you say are the important issues that we all need to be thinking about right now? Well, we've literally lost almost two decades in global multilateral negotiations around the climate crisis, which, as we all know, is the biggest existential threat we face as a species. 
essentially what has happened in the multilateral negotiations is more an attempt to shift away from a regulated approach to bringing down carbon emissions towards bringing forth market-centered solutions, including carbon trading and so on. It's been about finding techno solutions, uh, geoengineering, and trying to think about the, the climate problem in a technocratic way that can be solved by merely tinkering with the systemic causes of this problem. In the wake of us abandoning the Kyoto Protocol, which really held the richer industrialized countries responsible uh, in the main, we've ended up displacing that. We've ended up uh, displacing the common and differentiated responsibility principle. And we've come to a place where this ratchet up mechanism, which comes out of the Paris COP21 summit, uh, much vaunted last year as the big breakthrough, the big deal. But really, we are at a place where it's up to nation states to determine uh, their targets and what they can bring to this challenge. And that's fraught with all kinds of problems. Uh, so for example, if Chinese growth falters, I, I would believe it's given that they would put the environment on the back burner. Or if politics in the United States changes, <laughs> a denialist comes into the White House, okay? Massive reversals. So this is not the kind of deal and breakthrough that can save us. It's not binding. It's not regulating carbon emissions. The second thing about it is that it doesn't really think in terms of systemic solutions that can really address the sources of carbon emissions in production, uh, in consumption, in how we've organized societies. Okay, So we're addicted to carbon. It's implicated in the entire system. So we're really not thinking in terms of how do we decarbonize this entire civilization and how do we move away uh, from this kind of civilization to a more sustainable one? The, the, the third issue is, is, is to really think about all of this in transitional terms. If we are going to bring about change on the scale of the planet, civilization, and so on, we really need to think about how do we get from where we are to a better place that can sustain life. And the just transition idea is a very, very important idea in this discipline. Just transition idea comes from trade unions that have been thinking hard also about the climate crisis and how do you move national economies that might be dependent on coal, for example, away from that to renewable energy? What happens to the workers in coal? How do you build up these industries, etc.? But it's also about addressing those deeper systemic issues I've been talking about. How do you move away from fossil-driven industrialization? Um, is there a new kind of industrialization that's carbon-free and carbon-neutral and so on. Linked to this, of course, is concrete alternatives that will really help us uh, give content and meaning to a deep, transformative just transition. And here, actually, the, the, the multilateral outcomes really fail us. Carbon trading, reducing carbon to a derivative, well, we've seen what that's done to economies, right? Uh, these are false solutions. But in parallel to all of this, the people's climate space, the rising climate justice movement, has put forward very, very important proposition that will help us address some of the systemic challenges. So, for example, we're talking about food sovereignty, championed by the largest uh, social movement on the planet, La Via Campesina, over 200 million members. And they are saying that we need a food system that's controlled by producers and consumers, but that's also grounded in a science of agroecology that is really harmonized with
that's very different from the kind of carbon-emitting, industrial-scale, globalized agriculture we have. Some studies suggest globalized agriculture contributes anywhere between 30 and 40 percent of global emissions. You crack that problem, you're solving a big part of the challenge, food sovereignty. Another alternative is climate jobs. And to really think about jobs, not as green jobs, which are really greenwashed jobs, uh, you know, if you do any kind of conservation and so on, that's a green job. But a climate job, by definition, really is about bringing down carbon emissions. It almost has a zero carbon footprint. And, and there you really start thinking about a whole host of things, public transport systems. You start thinking about food systems, small-scale agroecological farming. You start thinking about the production of renewable energy technologies uh, and things like that. And there's a study that's been done in the South African context which suggests you can create three million climate jobs in such a transition, for example, leaving behind dirty industries and so on. Mm -hmm. Another proposition, a systemic alternative, is the idea of the basic income grant. Now, the basic income grant is not a means-tested income mechanism. It's for all citizens. And what the climate justice movement has been doing is bringing it into the framing of a just transition because we really have unviable societies in terms of how income has been distributed currently. That's where we're starting from. But if we are going to move forward, we really have to tackle this problem of inequality. It will break dependency on the labor market if they are employed. But at the same time, it will also give the unemployed, which, by the way, unemployment rates in the world, on a world scale, have been going up consistently. So, you know, you're almost moving beyond full employment, but not work, but you're moving beyond the economics of full employment. You'll never have it again because of globalized value chains and so on. So in the context of the climate crisis, the basic income grant becomes very, very important as a transitional measure. Maybe one last idea to think about is the idea of a zero waste society. And to really think about waste in, not in linear terms in this materials economy that we have, but to really think about it in circular terms and waste that can um, actually be um, brought back into the materials economy in a, in a virtuous cycle, almost. And that's a philosophy that's being championed by waste pickers all over the world, and really trying to think about how do we challenge sort of throwaway design, obsolescence, and really thinking about how we use resources much, much more sustainably. So anyway, these are some of the propositions that are coming to the fore from the climate justice movement. Okay, so we're seeing a situation where at a transnational intergovernmental level, mm -hmm. strategies to slow down, halt or resolve climate change are, are effectively failing. Mm -hmm. And what you've described to us is a number of different kind of bottom-up community citizen-driven campaigns which mm -hmm. could potentially hold some of the solutions mm -hmm. to the problems we're facing. And you've said a lot of really interesting things that, I, that I'd like to come back to and talk about in more depth. But perhaps you could give us just a, a brief insight into the state of climate change policy in South Africa right now, just so that we can situate ourselves within this kind of global picture that you've painted. What is our government getting right? What are they getting wrong? Uh, it's a very contradictory uh, policy sort of picture. On the one hand, the government has a very progressive climate change white paper, which understands the imperatives around mitigation and adaptation, at least in theory, and at a propositional level. 
At the same time, you have a complement to this, which is our climate change emission scenarios, sort of the peak plateau decline scenarios. Uh, and you know, by about 2045, we're meant to be in a zone that's acceptable in terms of our nationally determined commitments. We also have a government that has signed on to the Paris Ratchet Up mechanism. And in a formalistic sense, it seems that government's marching in tandem with the global consensus. But it doesn't add up, because on the flip side of all of this is a massive investment in coal-fired power stations, so Madupi and Kusile. And you have also an extension of this minerals energy complex into the new oceans economy, Operation Akisa, which is all about looking for gas and offshore fossil fuels like oil and so on. Uh, so there's a big push around resource nationalism inside uh, the ruling party's policy and the government. If you read the National Development Plan, the chapter on environment is more extraction to pay for the just transition. It's, it's, it's highly contradictory. Um, so there's also a very strong commitment, at least at a policy level, at a discourse level, to a developmental state. but. The thinking is really 20th century developmental state. It's old-style industrialization. China is a point of reference in a lot of this conversation, and, and policies speak. And, and there's, there's an argument being made by policymakers in South Africa. Well, we need, if you like, to have the carbon space to industrialize and so on and so on. But the fact of the matter is that South Africa has allowed itself to be deindustrialized because of the way it's globalized and so on. There are alternative propositions that the government's closed the door on. So, for example, the National Union of Metal Workers in this country have had two national conferences on the question of energy and alternatives. The first was an international conference in which they brought leading experts to think about how do you build a renewables industry in this country. And everyone who came to that conversation had very serious examples and models and experiences of how people built up wind in Denmark, have built up solar in other parts of the world, in Germany, Uruguay is um, largely not. I've heard recently 100% renewable energy mix and so on. Some great, great insights. And that translated into an argument uh, from the Metal Workers Union that we need to build a renewables energy uh, industry. At the same time, we need to advance socially on renewables. So, you know, learning from all these different experiences in Germany, small villages and towns come together and they they pool their money in cooperatives, they buy a windmill, okay, or they buy enough solar panels that can, that can give them renewable energy. So socially owned renewables became a very big idea. But the important thing was that they were saying to government, go down this industrialization path. Why do we have to import our solar panels, our wind technologies, and so on? Let's nurture, let's build a domestic industry. That door was closed, okay. At the same time, in their second conference, which focused largely on the crisis in Eskom, what the union was saying to the country and to government was that Eskom is basically on a path that's going to produce expensive fossil fuel stroke coal-based energy for a very, very long time. And that's a dead end, okay? While at the same time, we have evidence that the unit cost of electricity coming from renewables has come down dramatically, it's more cost-effective, the technology is easier to manage, etc., etc. And so their argument has been, we really need to think about how do we bring into the grid 
renewable energy options. Again, maybe through a parastatal, renewable energy parastatal, promoting socially owned renewables, etc., etc. But again, the government slammed the door on that. I mean, so what we are sitting with is massive indebtedness with ESCOM to the World Bank and so on for building this massive baseload infrastructure that's going to be very costly for the poor in this country going forward. Those who are wealthy are opting out of the grid and going the renewable route, whereas government could be ahead of the curve incentivizing the sort of energy choices that people make, integrating it into a regulated energy, renewable energy system and building up that system. That's not the path that government's taken. So in the end, you know, if you look at where we are, just on the energy front, it doesn't add up with the overall emissions thrust of the country. The other point to make, you know, is that even if you look at the drought currently, the drought is the window into the future. We have a drought cycle in South Africa, it's El Nino driven, so we had one in early 80s, early 90s, we had one now which has been the deepest, the longest, the hardest drought. It's a window into the future and we are going to have another El Nino drought. Before this drought, we had just over 14 million people hungry in this country, 53% of the population food insecure. After the drought, or in the drought, that number has definitely gone up. Nobody's tracking it in government. But what it's revealing, though, is that the industrialized, globalized food system that we have is really incapable of providing us with a resilient and sustainable food system. It's failing millions of people already in the context of a massive climate shock, and that's how we, I understand this drought, it's a climate shock. It, it cannot be divorced. I mean, you can debate the nitty-gritties of correlations and so on, but it cannot be divorced from the global shift that's going on. In this climate shock, it's clear that we really do need to think about an alternative food system, and that's where food sovereignty comes to the fore. The government is nowhere near this debate, is not thinking about this. We are not drawing lessons from this drought. We're not building institutional capabilities from this drought. We are not preparing for the future. So I'm just giving you two examples of energy and water while at the same time you have this massive push around an industrialized vision, carbon emissions and so on. Doesn't add up in South Africa. So it's not a terribly optimistic picture looking mm -hmm. at government's policies and uh, implementation plans. So let's shift our attention now a little bit to thinking about the role of the university within this picture. What would you say the role of universities could be in contributing to solutions to some of the very huge problems that you've outlined? I think universities are very, very important at a host of levels around this challenge. Firstly, it's clear in the South African context we don't have national leadership. So, for example, the State of the Nation address this year post the Paris Climate Summit, uh, there was no mention of the climate agreement. Yet it's, 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 it's problematic in many ways, but yet it should have been something that was announced, loud hailed from the platform of parliament and so on. Nothing came through. There is no leadership on this question in South Africa. So universities as big institutions, so WITS, almost 35,000 more people working at this institution, is a big institution in the society. And if it can demonstrate symbolically its commitment to zero carbon emissions, its commitment to zero hunger, and really embracing the just transition, living these, if you like, systemic alternatives, uh, transitioning this entire university space and its population and its practices in an ecological direction, that will be powerful for society. 
I mean, I can come back to specifics about this, and, and I'd, like to, I'd like to talk more about some of the engagements we're having currently at FITS. But in addition, I mean, I think that universities also are an economic actor in society. Many of them invest in the economy. The question that universities have to be asking themselves is, are they investing outside of the fossil fuel industry? Okay. Are they investing outside of institutions? that might be in bed with the fossil fuel industry. So there's a big divestment imperative around this, and it's growing in different parts of the world and so on, and universities need to take this on board. I think the third issue, of course, is the kind of research, academic kind of thrust around this. Now, yes, universities in South Africa, to some extent, are producing cutting-edge research on climate stuff. There's a recent book that just came out, Bits Press, for example, in which we have some of our leading climatologists talking about this problem. But at the same time, and this reflects a, a, a problem with the global discourse on, on climate change, it's very much driven by climate scientists. This problem, the climate crisis, is bigger than just climate science. It's, it's a profoundly a social political economy problem as well. And in that context, there's an imperative for an interdisciplinary dialogue and engagement around this problem. It's a problem that requires us to, if you like, bring ecology into the humanities, into the social sciences. I mean, the Anthropocene theory, for example, which has become, there's an official version of it, even inside the UN process, is, a, I would argue, very simplistic approach to understanding causality from a social scientific perspective. And so if we bring in a much more engaged social scientific approach uh, together with other disciplines around the climate problem, I think we will, we will come to grips with a much more nuanced social understanding of the systemic underpinnings of the climate crisis and not reduce it to, well, all human beings are responsible and so on and so on which is not true. Uh, there are inequalities in how resources are used in the world. There are inequalities in how energy is used in the world and distributed and so on. So, you know, part of the official thinking coming out of the UN process does require an interdisciplinary conversation. It requires academic disciplines to take on board the climate imperative and to bring it in. In addition, we need research agendas that can take this further in an interdisciplinary way. And, you know, I really think I sit on the Development Studies Board at Bits University. I really think we need to scrap all the textbooks on development because we are now living in a new world in which human survival is the imperative. And that means we really have to rethink our paradigms of viable societies today. How do we sustain societies today? And you know, we think this beyond just technocratic discourses of sustainable development and so on. We really need to be thinking with, if you like, prefigurative processes in the world today in which people are making these breakthroughs that are finding the kind of uh, approaches to adaptation, survival, and so on and so on. Uh, we need to find and draw lessons from moments of crisis in the planet and how people are coping with crisis because that's going to be our new normal and build societies around those kinds of realities more and more. You know, infrastructure is a big issue in the context of crisis and so on. And, and what kind of smart infrastructure do you need and so on. 
So I think, you know, we really got to rethink the whole paradigm of sustaining life. And this is where growth-centered economics is just not the way forward, you know. Um, so there's massive intellectual paradigmatic issues to be grappled with around this. And, you know, some, some people will start with the Anthropocene and, you know, the geological community in the world is now about to formalize this as a geological epoch. And, you know, they just announced their, their, their working group results in South Africa on the 29th of August this year that they are leaning in that direction. They just got to find the formal markers in the stratigraphy that delineates this epoch, where we are a geological force as human beings shaping everything on this planet, all life forms. Yes, so research, interdisciplinary stuff, providing leadership in society, and of course, embodying the kind of ecological practices that are necessary. Okay, so interdisciplinary research is central, and I'm sure that will also filter into all of the teaching that yes, people yes. in various disciplines yes. are doing. Yeah. I mean, I brought climate change, for example, into a course I was teaching on media and global culture last year. Oh, you know, so I think those kinds brilliant. of things are exciting. Exactly. But can we talk also a little bit more about what kinds of policies can and should universities be implementing to lead as examples on these issues? And in your experience, yeah. from your position here at WITS, what would you say are some of the key contributions universities can make to fixing these okay. problems. So I'm going to talk very practically about this, and I'm going to draw on the actual engagements we're having with the university. So through the Food Sovereignty Campaign and the Inala Student Forum for Climate Justice and Food Sovereignty, we handed over a memorandum to this university calling for a zero-carbon and a zero-hunger university. So almost pointing out the interconnectedness between the climate and the food crisis. And in that process and in the memorandum, we've posed the following demands, if you like, or propositions to the university. We're calling on the university to very consciously embrace the just transition idea and to, and as I've been saying, move in this direction as a big institution. Because there's no leadership at the top, it's important that we start getting knock-on effect leadership from below. The other idea, so building on that, is we've called for the university to really become uh, an institution that runs on renewable energy, okay, and to explore all kinds of renewable energy technologies for the scale of institution. So, you know, whether it's concentrated solar power or whether it's... Um, you know, solar um, pools and the different university campuses, whether it's wind, you know, to really explore the mix of technologies that will give us the kind of energy that we need that's renewable and to cut our carbon footprint to zero at that level in terms of immediate use in buildings and so on and so on in infrastructure. The other, and, and you know, that could mean a common renewable energy pool and it could also be used as leverage vis-a-vis -vis local government, but I'll come back to that because there's an idea around this. The third thing we've called for is for a car-free zone at the university and to really think about bicycle lanes and building that kind of infrastructure, but also making the university seamlessly accessible to its environs around it. What am I talking about? It means the university has to sit down with the city and plan sort of access to public transport. So you can easily access this university from anywhere in the city coming into work, coming into study, etc., and going home, and so on and so on. 
So you know you have strategically located bus nodes that connects you to trains, that connects you to whatever. Okay. But the argument that we've also been making is that the university must use its leverage of 35,000 people to negotiate in addition with the city for a special card, an intermodal transport card at a discounted price that can be used on all transport in the city uh, because you've got this internal market that can allow you to do this. Uh, so you use that leverage. It goes back also to renewable energy because if we generate enough renewable energy in this big institution, we can sell it back to the city. Uh, so we've been challenging university on its economics as well. You know, right now it's all about fees and the challenges and the cost squeeze. Well, if we're smart about energy, it could be an income generator for the university. It's right there, staring us in the face. Mm -hmm. The other thing is to really think about retrofitting all of these buildings so they're more thermally efficient and insulated appropriately, etc. So our energy needs and so on are, are recalibrated. To also think about the whole question of grey waste and zero waste water, but also zero waste uh, as a philosophy guiding this institution to close that loop, both your wet waste and your dry waste, and to really think smartly about how we bring that back into the university economy all the time and space. Uh, we've also argued for the university to think about a food commons, mm -hmm. because we do have a massive hunger problem at the university. The university cannot give us accurate data, and, um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a process around that. But we do know intuitively and from some of the numbers that people have from the food bank and so on, it's anywhere between 400 and some say 14,000 students that are hungry at this university. So it's very serious. So the food commons idea is to really ensure that we're using all the green spaces on this university campus. They don't have to be spaces that are just about aesthetics, you know. So you have grass and grass is really not ecological, right? We could have agroecology gardens spread across this campus. The gardening services can be trained in agroecology. We can be producing a lot of food at this university to feed its, its university population. We could have fruit orchards. Again, we can train the university gardeners uh, in how to do this, etc., etc., and destigmatize access to food. Linked to this is a food sovereignty center that we've argued for, and the, and the university so far has leaned towards conceiving a building together with the, the WITS WCCO, which runs the food bank at WITS. And the idea of the Food Sovereignty Center is to, is to really give dignity to hungry students and to provide for a communal kitchen and to really have it as a cultural space that's affirming and, and, and making it a space in which they feel that they are integrated into the university rather than an afterthought, getting their meals in a parking lot behind the matrix and so on. We've also argued that the university needs to think about its investment portfolio and disinvest if it is in fossil fuels either directly or indirectly. And we've requested that the university give us some idea of its investment patterns and choices. And we're calling on it to disinvest immediately. In the memorandum, argued for the water issue also to be very important. You know, the university sits on a very important source of water in the city. So we really need to think about that, including water harvesting, thinking about how do we ensure that we have adequate water resources that are reusable and things like that. So again, you know, really thinking about a different ecological practice around all the resources that flow through this space and ensuring that the university becomes a beacon 
point of reference, uh, a powerful symbolic example in society of where we need to be going. And how has university management responded to the memorandum? Do you think they have the political will and capacity to implement and manifest this vision? Well, listen, I was very heartened the day after we handed the memorandum, I received a phone call from our Vice-Chancellor Adam Habib, and it was very warming to hear him say that you know he would have even marched with us and he agrees with a lot of what we put forward and so on. And I think that's, that's, that's welcome. But I think the test is now in the context of the dialogue. And so far we've had one formal meeting with the university management. On our side, as Inala Forum, with students and the Food Sovereignty Campaign, as, as an interested academic, we've had one workshop, we're having a second workshop this afternoon to develop our concept around the Food Sovereignty Centre. There's a scheduled follow-up meeting with the university management. In the first meeting that we've had with them, they were not hostile to anything, actually. The biggest concern was around costs. How are we going to cost this transition? And I think that's where there's room for, I want to choose my words carefully, <laughs> you know, because there's, there's this kind of orthodox, dogmatic way of thinking about fiscal problems just in terms of numbers and costs. And so that immediately just limits the conversation. So far we haven't encountered that, but I think if there's room for a creative process of thinking about these solutions, so, you know, we can really think about our leverage with the city, for example, as I've been saying, around public transport. We have an internal market here. How can we use that to bargain in integrated public transport and design with the city? How can we use this internal market to bargain in renewable energy, sellback? Why don't we become the pilot of the city for a feedback tariff to the city and generate income for the university? Linked to this, of course, is the fact that what we've said in, in the discussions with the university, is that we're not waiting on them to take things forward. As the campaign, we are going to actively go out to society and also raise resources for this. So for example, the students in the Nala Forum, uh, they gave a petition to the university for fruit trees. I think there were thousands and thousands of signatures on it. What's accompanying that is clearly a solidarity that can be translated into a call for fruit trees to be donated to this university very easily. We can call on schools to donate seeds uh, for the agroecology gardens, and we're willing to do this. We can call on the waste pickers who are part of the food sovereignty campaign to come and educate us about zero waste philosophy and how to get zero waste systems going in this university space. We've also indicated to the university that we are willing to fundraise for the food sovereignty center. Let me also add, add in this dimension around the Food Sovereignty Centre, and it's, it's something that's up for discussion and it's, it's, it's in the design uh, conversation we're having. We are talking about the Food Sovereignty Centre, but it's not just feeding students, not just being a demonstration space of the future for the other buildings and other parts of the university community. So it has grey waste, uh, renewable energy, thermally efficient um, architecture and all of those kinds of things but it also houses the National Seed Bank for South Africa. Uh, the National Seed Bank for South Africa would allow us to protect our biogenetic resources and ensure that that seed bank can bring back production in the context of climate shocks and can be linked to a network of community-based seed banks. And in this way, shoring up the possibility of a more resilient food pathway for our society. 
so that's another part of the conversation that we want to deepen with the university and in the partnership. All very promising and exciting ideas. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about the resonance between the term that you used earlier about decarbonizing our societies mm. and universities mm. and the current debates and discussions about decolonizing mm. universities. Mm. And I'm wondering if you see any links between these two. Mm. Some might see them as quite separate sets of concerns and issues. And I'm wondering if, if you see them in any way as connected, and if so, how? I think they are connected very much. Well, I think the first is understanding eco-imperialism and understanding how the climate problem originated, its genesis and its development coming out of the Industrial Revolution, which was centered on the global north, and understanding how, in the context of the climate negotiations, there's also been a kind of eco-imperialism around not wanting to take responsibility uh, for this challenge, not wanting to put sufficient resources into helping countries of the global south that didn't create this problem in the first place. I mean, yes, you can bring China into the picture and you can bring India into the picture, but that's not the global south. Okay, the vast majority of poor countries in the world. And so there's a very strident and a very, very sharp, uh, if you like, anti-imperial critique that can be made of the climate negotiations. In other words, the eco-imperialism we're seeing today is eco-fascist, actually. The most advanced thinking in the world, and I teach it in a course that I uh, teach at this university, a postgrad seminar called Empire and the Crisis of Civilization, the most advanced thinking on climate change is actually in the Pentagon. And the Pentagon scenarios are all about lifeboat America. Okay? So it's using military might to police prospective zones of chaos on the planet. Now that imperialism is an obstacle to us finding a common humanitarian-based solution that will benefit all of us on this planet. Um, it's also, there's also another dimension to this, which is really a failure of countries in the global north to understand the systemic roots of this problem. Which means that we cannot be trapped in just thinking about one way of development. So modernity and catch-up and copies and so on. We're really at a place in human history and in this new climate-changed world where we've got to be more open. Which brings me to these alternatives I've been talking about. I mean, food sovereignty comes largely out of a peasant-based movement in the global south. A peasant-based movement that has recovered traditional knowledge uh, in which the farmer over centuries has been at the center of working in harmony with nature, learning constantly from that relationship and building up knowledge all right, around how to farm within ecological limits and within ecosystems in a way that reproduces them and human life. Now, that traditional knowledge is a science and it's coming back and it's offering us another way to think about food systems rather than globalized uh, corporate controlled industrialized food systems seeds seeds and food culture go together okay i mean this monocultural expansion that we've had in the world of one diet uh, one set of food choices and so on extinguishes food cultures Okay, particularly food cultures in the global south, it extinguishes food choices, diets that have been in the global south for a long time, uh, eating different kinds of grains and pulses and foods are being extinguished. So there's a whole, there's a whole set of issues here around decolonization that we can definitely bring into the conversation. Um, 
I mean, lastly, I would say that, um, I mean, the challenge to, that, that this problem also poses to decolonization is to avoid getting caught up in particularisms because, and essentialisms, because we're really living at a point where in human history, without human solidarity, okay, looking beyond whiteness and blackness and so on, without human solidarity and a radical humanism, we will not survive. Bring it into the classroom. I mean, you and I share that. Uh, very important. And, um, we have to ensure that the generations passing through this university appreciate the challenge and the problem. They largely have to live with and solve. Um, I think that's key. Uh, I think the other important issue for us is to think about collective agency. The only way we're going to uh, move things in the direction of the just, deep just transition, the transformative just transition, is if we build a movement. And I think here I'm talking about a different mode of mass politics. I'm not even talking about political parties per se. I'm talking about a mass politics that can produce alternatives and construct them now in the present. That's what's needed. So if we can move our university to embody this alternative, ecocentric way of living, Although some might argue that environmental issues are the least of our problems at the moment, I think our conversation has made it pretty clear that there are really important overlaps between questions about the accessibility of education and questions about justice and sustainable social environments. Just as there are links between climate change and hunger, there are links between the accessibility of universities and social justice. I hope today's conversation inspires listeners to engage with their own university structures, to find out what they're doing to decarbonize, and also to get involved. Okay, I'm Cesar Masenia. I'm doing civil engineering. Interestingly enough, we were actually doing a waste management project recently. So uh, in that project, I actually had time to review the university's environmental habits and behaviors. And yeah, we totally should because we do produce people who become leaders in the industry. And if our thinking doesn't really model how society should be, then we're going to end up becoming a stumbling block towards that when we do go out there. Um, they could actually adopt concepts that are found in environmental in the environmental space. In other words, environmentally friendly practices. Because one of the things you do see on campus is uh, old waste management practices, uh, old technologies as well, you know. And there, there isn't so much labeling. Like, you, you don't get the feel that it's a leading environmental institution, unlike maybe business institutions, which want to tell you that we are green because they want to sell that. So I think they could definitely do more. Yeah, I think I think vets should really take uh, in the environmental concern as a priority and make sure that it's known, especially uh, in South Africa, because our our what you call our societies has got high inequalities, right? You know that, and even our universities got a lot of people coming from a lot of places. So this is really one place where you can inculcate the culture of environmental concern to every person. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za.
The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungi Lembenyane. Thanks to Vishwa Satka, Ulsana and Sizwe for their time. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.